Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hi there, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I'll tell you what, I get the opportunity to talk with so many incredible minds in this series, but today I'm here with not only a brilliant thinker, but a veterinarian and a researcher who's impacting really the future of veterinary medicine. And she's touching lives of not only equine patients, but human patients as well with her work. Um, and just managing to be a really cool person throughout it all. And I'm talking about our friend, Dr. Carrie Finno. Welcome, Dr. Finno. How are you doing today? I am excellent, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Good to, good to virtually see all of you guys on this it, webinar. Right. It's great to virtually see you. I hope it's in person soon. And, and as I mentioned, Dr. Finno is an extremely well-respected veterinarian. She's also a board-certified internal medicine specialist, and she's the director of the renowned UC Davis Center for Equine Health. And she follows in a, in a long line of exceptional veterinarians in that title there. Um, and she's also the namesake of the Finno Laboratory at UC Davis. And Dr. Finno, I feel like with that list of credentials, the way I figure it, you should be like 112 years old. Um, <laughs> but folks, she's young, she's dynamic. And with all that she's accomplished and discovered, uh, she's really just getting started. So Dr. Finno, we have gathered here today to talk on the subject uh, that I know has your full passion behind it. And that's the pursuit of a better understanding and decoding of genetics and the role that genes play, not just in disease, but how we can better predict disease, prevent disease. And when it occurs, treat it with this precision approach, uh, hopefully for a more optimal outcome. So, you know, your lab is doing incredible things. Um, I want you to introduce us to that work, if you would, and kind of the purpose behind your work and your team's work. Um, and what you all are, are out to accomplish at the Finno Lab. Yeah, well, thanks for the intro. So I think one of the things that the field is moving towards, and it's done it in human medicine, and we're starting to see it more and more in veterinary medicine, is exactly what you said, this use of precision medicine or personalized medicine that we can maybe start taking to individual horses. So I think when all of us as veterinarians think of genetics, we think of, okay, well, there are these tests that are available that you can go test horses for. There's a lot of diseases we don't have tests available for yet, but we know have an underlying inherited cause, or at least inheritance plays a role in it, probably environment too. And so the question is, is could we actually start screening horses early for certain things that potentially we can intervene, whether that's nutrition, something in the environment, the way they're managed, their fitness program, and lead them towards a healthier career long-term. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the grandiose vision of this individualized medicine and how we can actually leverage their genetics, right? And use all that information to maximize their health and performance. So that's the overarching goal. Um, you know, it comes down to a lot of individual projects that try to get us there in various ways, but that's really what we're looking to do. 
Sure. Well, I mean, I, I find it fascinating. And so I, and along with a lot of other people, heard you speak on the subject at Platinum Summit in 2019. And I felt like yours was a talk where the room got silent and I was watching the crowd. And I mean, there was what, I don't know, three, 300, 350 people there. And they're all leaning forward in their seats. And I mean, blown away at the potential of this work that you're doing. And I felt like you did such an amazing job of connecting it between horses and, and humans, the four-leggers and the two-leggers. Um, and I, I thought it was fascinating. And I mean, Platinum Summit is this TED Talk style event. So your lecture was 20 minutes. And I felt like when you walked off the stage, everybody was wanting more of what <laughs> you were talking about. I mean, it was really, I cannot tell you, I mean, how amazing it was because it really opens your eyes to the future of what's possible in practice, you know, and it's not that far out, you know, a lot of these things are in the here and now, and so many of them are on the cusp of being in the here and now. Um, and I took away a few things from that lecture and I, you know, because I'm hosting today, I get to ask you whatever I want. So I'll, I'll ask you about those things. Um, and I want to dig into them because they really were so interesting. And I think that perhaps to me, one of the most exciting things about the study of genetics, and I guess it's twofold really, is that not only are equine and human practitioners learning from each other, but that this technology is spurring this entire new realm of what we know as precision medicine. And, you know, meaning that in the future, we'll be able to target these individuals with this pinpoint approach rather than treating everyone with the same drug, the same dosage, the same approach. So what is precision medicine and what are the future implications? I remember at Platinum Summit, there was a story that you told that stuck with me and I'm going to put you on the spot. You brought up a perfect example of it. And it was the story of a little girl named Myla and she was five at the time. She's got to be around eight now. Um, and walk us through precision medicine, if you would, and, and kind of remind us a little bit of her story. Cause I thought it illustrated it really well. Yeah. So that was actually the first example that happened in Colorado. So it's the first example of where a drug company actually created a unique drug that was targeted towards that little girl's specific disease. So um, as we know, right, in all of these diseases, we've got, um, here's, your, here's your phenotype, here's your disease that you're dealing with. And then we apply drug A to everything that looks like that disease, even if there's different subtypes within there. And what they were able to do in that case of that little girl was actually go in, figure out what the genetic mutation was, and then design a drug quickly, which I think is an incredibly important part of that. More, too, more right? than a minor miracle. Yeah. More than a minor miracle. <laughs> Get the FDA approval through and actually start treating her. And it really set the precedent for, you know, actually using somebody's genome um, and somebody's own personalized disease to target therapies. And they're doing this across the board now. So, you know, patients with Lou Gehrig's disease or um, ALS actually can donate stem cells, and then they will try to target specific therapies at that individual's cells in a Petri dish before thinking of applying it to that person. Wow. So it's a way to really kind of tailor treatments because everybody's a little bit different, right? At a molecular level, there might be something a bit different. If you can tailor treatments to that individual based on their genetic makeup and the disease process and the pathway that's going on in that person, 
you're really going to be so much more precise, hence the term. And right. trying to apply that same thing to horses is really what we'd like to do. Now, we're not nearly as far into the equine genome as the humans are, right? So they pretty much know all the variation. They know a lot of genetic mutations. They've sequenced, um, you know, millions and millions of people. And in horses, you know, we're getting into the thousands, we're getting there, but knowing what every single base pair does, we're still not quite there yet. So I think being able to start pushing the envelope on that because it's so cost effective to sequence now. So you can sequence the genome of a horse for right around $2,000 or a little under, and the price keeps going down. Um, so it's actually easy to get the information, but you need to correlate that information with what you're seeing in the horse. And I think that's where as veterinarians, we play such an important role because we know the disease and we know the phenotype and, you know, this particular horse with Cushing's might look a little bit different than this horse with Cushing's and we know what those differences are. So if you can start to correlate the genetic differences with what veterinarians are seeing and then figure out, can you intervene early? Um, I think that's really the goal of, you know, preventative medicine is getting it so precise, being able to get in there and manage some things that are manageable and try to have a good outcome. So I, I envision the day, and I don't know if it's that far off, right, where there will be panels that you can screen horses for certain variants in the genome. I wouldn't call them mutations because it has such a negative connotation, but a little bit like 23andMe, right? Yeah. As a person, you can submit a sample for 23andMe, you get back this whole thing about everything from hair in your ear to, you know, disease risk. And there are certain things that you can change right in your lifestyle that may help you stay away from that disease. Um, there are certain things you can't change, but at least you're informed. And I think if we can do that for our horses, I know it's going to be a whole lot easier to change our horse's diet than it is to change our own. I would say from personal experience, I would say you're right. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's funny because the, folks that work with us on the precision medicine project and horses, that was the thing they were most excited about. They said, wait a minute, you can do this and you can change the horse's diet and they'll, they'll listen. I'm like, well, they have to listen. We're feeding them. They said, well, with people, we could never get them to change their diet. They said they actually offered folks like a, a free cruise around the world if they would follow this diet for a few months and nobody agreed to do it. <laughs> No so, vacationing there. Yeah. No vacationing there. Yep. Yeah. So we can intervene, which is pretty fantastic. Well, Dr. Finnell, I don't know about the accuracy of 23andMe because they came back and said I had the muscular structure of a superior athlete. And so I think they might. Congratulations. Be yeah, oh, it's totally they validated. Yeah, it's they, totally... they might not know what they're talking about though. So um, yeah, catch me after five minutes on my rower and you, you, might, you might see that they were very wrong. Um, so. You can leverage that, Jesse. You just have to, you know, get yourself in a different program and you'll be right, right. there. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, one thing that struck me about Myla's story is that you shared that she had this extremely rare, um, genetic variation. Um, and it was a, it was a deletion of what 22 base pairs, right. Or 22 yeah, base pair deletion. And weird. I, um, so yeah, so I'm just your personal stalker. Don't be, don't be alarmed. No, that's not um, works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you were talking about her specific, um, genetic variation and how there was, I believe 26 people in the entire world that had yeah. this. And so I feel like, I mean, it gives a lot of hope, not only on the equine side, but on the human side for anyone who's been diagnosed with a quote unquote rare condition, yeah. um, that potentially this idea of precision medicine could be a game changer. And you gave another 
example in that talk that I think had, you know, everybody in the room leaning forward in particular, which was of tamoxifen. Um, you know, obviously a, a drug that's given to breast cancer patients widely and has been for a long, long time. Um, can you remind us of that? Because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So what they ended up finding is that um, there's a large number of women that have differences in how they metabolize tamoxifen. And so it ends up being ineffective because of that individual's genetics and the way they metabolize the drug, it actually can't target the cancer. So those people are actually not good candidates for tamoxifen, even though they have what looks like the same breast cancer and the same disease, and that would be the right drug, it's because of the way they metabolize it. And so again, it's, it's gonna be very similar. I mean, we've all had situations you know, with horses where you can give three horses the same dose of banamine, right? And one's gonna get better and whatever the inflammation is, is gonna go down. One, you might get no effect. And then the other one might go into renal failure, you know, or something awful might happen as a side effect. And you're thinking, what in the world? Everybody was hydrated, you know, everything else was the same. Why did this one horse have such a hard time? And it probably is because of the way they metabolize certain drugs. And so that whole field of pharmacogenomics, right? And how to target drug dosages. I mean, I need three ibuprofen. Um, my mom needs one, right? To kind of get the same effect. And we've all had that. Um, and so I think that it's taking it a whole step further and saying, could we design anesthetic protocols, sedation protocols? We've all had that as veterinarians where you give what you think is a regular dose, right, of drugs, and it pretty much knocks one horse out and the other one it barely touches. Same breed, same height, same weight. So I do think that pharmacogenomics is going to be incredible, not only for treating disease, but then there's a whole other facet about drug testing, right? And there might be certain horses that actually don't metabolize drugs very fast, and so they'll come back testing positive, but they could have actually been given that drug within the allowed time. It's just that they slowly metabolize it. So can we start incorporating that in? Um, I think it's going to be important in all aspects of equine medicine. Gosh, the drug testing factor of it is something you don't even consider, but I mean, can yeah. really impact a lot of horses and a lot of, a lot of professional equestrians, that's for sure. And, and confuse the profession. Yes. Which, <laughs> them completely. So, so glad we could be here today, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Let me complicate it a little bit more. Yes. Right. Um, so going back to this idea of precision medicine versus personalized medicine, so they sound like the same thing, but what I've learned from you is in fact, they're not, they're different. What is that difference? So precision medicine is much more where you're um, actually targeting. So that example in that little girl, right? That specific mutation, um, you're figuring out what it is that's causing that particular disease. And then personalized medicine is now you're actually creating a treatment for that individual. So they're used interchangeably. They're not quite the same thing. I always think of personalized as the quote unquote designer treatment, right? So you get to that part. Precision is us trying to get the phenotype so specifically targeted that then we can get to personalized. I love it. Okay. That clears it up. And, you know, let's go back to the horse for a moment. So we've got so many things that are floating around here in the study of genetics and horses and all of them, I feel like are, are equally as exciting. So you've got pharmacogenetics, 
you've got nutrigenomics, um, microbiome, vitamin E, things like that. You've got immunology. You've got these genetic diseases that we're talking about. You've got regenerative medicine um, and these patient engineered stem cells, and you've got it all wrapped up into multiomics. Um, break it down for us, if you would, <laughs> so we can better understand where we're at and you know how these things are, are contributing to this study that could potentially change the, change the face of how we practice veterinary medicine. Yeah, so it's, it's really what we're, so we have a, a very novel project here at UC Davis that's called the Pioneer 100 Horse Project. And we've modeled this after a study they did in people. So they did um, the Pioneer Project in Seattle, Washington, where they had 100 people that came in, they provided blood samples, they provided fecal samples for microbiome sequencing, they provided all of their medical records over the span of two years, um, and they had their genome sequenced. And so the researchers on the human side were able to start putting all of that together and you know, actually being able to predict some things that maybe five years later, that person developed colon cancer and there was a biomarker that had gone up right in their blood earlier. And so we'd start to almost generate hypotheses for, well, should we look at this biomarker in additional patients? So we took that model and now we've now applied it to horses. Um, and we've done that here at UC Davis. And so we have a resident herd. So we've selected um, a little over hundred. So there's 109 horses that are part of this project. They're the teaching and research horses. They live out here. Um, they're kind of our VIPs anyway. They have complete medical records. We control their diets. We know everything about them. And so we've sequenced their entire genomes. We've also looked at their metabolomes. So both in blood, um, and then we've acquired fecal samples and then microbiome. And the really interesting thing is we've been able to do this over two years, over two seasons. So spring, fall, 2020 and spring, fall, 2021. So we have the same animals over time repeated and they've had things happen to them, right? Over two years, maybe one colic, maybe somebody had a laminitis episode. We have a few that have metabolic syndrome. We have a few that have Cushing's. So we were able to actually start correlating a lot of those diseases and phenotypes into all this multi-omic data, right? Which is the microbiome, the genome, the metabolome. And then the really cool thing is that we have a model from the human side, right? Because my, my fear is, okay, well, great, here's all the data, now what, right? But they were actually able to show that you pretty much put it in and they've got these algorithms, these computational algorithms, and it'll say, hey, this is actually linked to this, and this is linked to this, and the microbiome is predicting this. And you start to see all these interactions, and that's where you can generate those next projects where you say, hey, looks like this marker, you know what I mean? This might be a marker of a horse that's transitioning to Cushing's, right? This horse might be developing Cushing's long before its ACTH level goes up. And maybe I can use this biomarker to kind of track horses while they're young and see where they're at and perhaps intervene earlier. So I think that's the, that's kind of the big vision for the project. It's so amazing. And I mean, they're, they're using things like biomarkers as even in injury prediction and racehorses. I mean, it's yeah, fascinating yeah. to be able to pull biomarkers and be able to, I mean, with alarming accuracy, mm -hmm. predict orthopedic injuries. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So we're going very, um, very interesting places. And like you said, they're not too far away. Um, yep, they're here. So I feel like we've thought for so long, um, on both the human and the animal side that we're a slave to our genetics, 
whether it's, whether it's horses or humans, I, I feel like we've always looked at our, our parents, our, our relatives and said, oh my gosh, you know, my, my parent had breast cancer or colon cancer. I'm destined to get it too. Um, but that thought process has changed, right? And it's evolved in both human and equine medicine. And I feel like we now know that, that our environment, our dietary choices, our exercise, our exposure to toxins, restorative sleep, I mean, you name it, stress, stress is a biggie. Um, all of these things can change the game with how your genes express themselves. So how is that? And how can we improve our genetic odds? And what are the factors that we can use to do that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, your DNA doesn't change, right? Your, your DNA is your DNA. And you, like you said, you inherit what you get from your parents. However, there um, is the whole field of epigenetics, which is DNA that interacts with proteins. And um, that's actually also inherited. It's passed down over many generations, but we have the ability to change that. And I think it's, it's incredibly intriguing that you can change it not only for yourself, but you could actually change it for your children too, because you're going to pass those marks down to, you know, generations, your children and your grandchildren. And a lot of it is diet interactions, environmental interactions, um, toxin exposure. So the question is, is, you know, how do I know I'm doing well? Right. I mean, that's the, like, of course, you know, eat better, exercise more, right. We always hear that, but how do you know, how do you know where you are on that scale? And I think that's where having some of these biomarkers, whether they're metabolites or whatever they are, could come in, right? And you could say, okay, so yes, you have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer. We know that from your genes. In addition, we have your metabolite profiles. And there's a couple of metabolites here that we know when they go up means that your risk is, is increasing. And could we intervene? Could we try some things that could bring that down a bit? You know, whether that's some sort of environmental modification, whether it's medication, whatever it is, could we get in earlier so that overall your chances are decreased? And I think that's, that's the power. If you can actually harness that and get in and prevent, not even, and maybe you can't prevent, but maybe delay, right? The onset of certain conditions. I mean, you know, think about dementia, right? You want to talk about one thing that if we could delay even for a year, um, how profound that would be. So if we have those markers, if we have an idea of what we can go in and what we can manipulate, we, we have a chance of pushing that. Um, and I think at least from everything, you know, I've learned throughout the years is, is prevention is worth its weight in gold. Treatment can be a lot harder. Right. So if we can prevent and delay, we've got a better chance. Once the disease is there, especially if we're talking about neurologic disease, that can be really hard to treat. Very hard. And, you know, I remember talking to Dr. Mark Silverman about laminitis and he was talking about prevention and he said, listen, once we've got a laminitis diagnosis, we're already, you know, playing a oftentimes losing game. And it's like pushing a boulder up a hill with your nose is what he said. And I went, that's Great so, analogy. <laughs> so accurate, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the more that you can do up front, you know, um, it, it seems like a well, duh, but, um, but it's amazing how often we, we aren't able to do that. So with this emerging technology, it's going to be, um, a game changer for sure. So that's, that's the hope. I mean, we right? just need to prevent, we really need to prevent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when, when Dr. Herthel developed platinum, obviously we live in the world of nutrition and he always said, you know, what's one way that you can change gene expression, nutrition, you know, mm -hmm. like cha change your diet. And it's amazing what, you know, what that can do, because that's, 
that's how you're, you're feeding your body. So, and your cells and your genes. Um, so I want to get kind of into, to your work specifically, and a major focus of yours has been the role of vitamin E, um, in a lot of things, but in neuromuscular disorders in particular, and the genetic factors at play there. So tell me about that and what you found. And one piece of it that I found so interesting is how you've really been able to establish that every horse is unique and that a so-called normal level of vitamin E, uh, for instance, in one horse could be completely insufficient in another. And I was just, the name was popping into my head. And I remember from your summit talk, you told us about Liberty, yeah. right? It was, a, still, he lives out here. He's in the backyard out here. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Cause he sounded like he had the life. Um, he has the life. Yeah. So that was a great example though, of it's like, okay, gosh, you're out of the normal range and your blood work. Well, Liberty needed to be out of the normal range. Right? So tell me about your work in vitamin E and maybe his, his story in particular. Yeah, so that's the so the field of nutrigenomics, I think, is a good cousin, right, to pharmacogenomics. And it's a little bit in how nutrition can interact um, genetically and how based on your genetics, you might have different needs, right, than somebody else. And so Liberty is the the best example. Um, and so he uh he was actually donated here because they couldn't get weight on him. He's a big percheron. He's he was 16 at the time, I think he's 19 now. Um and he was just, just skinny and muscle atrophied. And the problem was he couldn't back up to the hitch. Um, and so they actually thought he had shivers. He was donated to us to study shivers. And um, Dr. Tatiana Vio, who's our manager here, was the one who called me. I hadn't seen him yet. And she said, you know, I know you always talk about vitamin e deficiencies and atrophy and trembling. And I think this horse doesn't have shivers. I think he's vitamin e deficient. And so I came out to look at him and he was just shaking, you know, and the farrier actually couldn't trim him because they couldn't pick his feet up because he'd fasciculate so badly. So he had it all along his forelegs, his hindquarters, and he just, he was skinny, but he was mostly atrophied. He had no muscle and he's a percheron. So he just, he looked awful. Um, it's just a pitiful looking thing. And his poor thing, his feet, cause he couldn't get trimmed. He had maggots in his frog. Um, he was just, he was a mess. And, uh, so in looking at him and the trembling and the signs he was showing, he did look like uh, a myopathy we've seen. So specifically, it just targets the muscle that with vitamin E deficiency that is reversible. Um, oftentimes, when the neurologic system gets infected or affected, we can't really reverse it. But if it's the muscle, we've got a chance. So we ended up taking a tailhead muscle biopsy, the sacrocardialis dorsalis, which is you take a piece of the muscle right over the tail because that has the postural muscles, the type one fibers in it which are the ones that are affected with vitamin E deficiency. We sent it to Dr. Stephanie Valberg at Michigan. She said, yep, that's exactly what he has. And in the meantime, we had started supplementing him. And that horse, I mean, within, you know, it's one of those things where you can actually make such a difference. Six to eight weeks, he was shiny, his muscles back, he stopped fasciculating, he could pick his feet up for the fair. We discovered said maggots. Um, everybody got a little nauseous, lucky um, for you. but lucky, lucky you. for us. But yeah, they were promptly cleaned. And, uh, he's, you know, he's kind of lived his life out in the herd ever since, but the interesting thing was, so normal vitamin E in the blood for horses, we say somewhere between three to six micrograms per mil, usually over two is normal, but three to six is my target. And so he was less than two when he came in, he was deficient. We rechecked him and he was up at nine and nine's too high, right? Like I have a reference range and I want him to be in the reference range. And so I actually started to back his vitamin E dose down 
And within one week, he started trembling again um, and having the same issues. And I checked his level and he was down to six. He was where he should be. But clinically, you look at him and you say he needs more. For whatever reason, that horse needs more to be normal. And so he stays on that high dose. I don't look at his blood levels anymore. Um, I make sure he can pick his feet up. He doesn't fasciculate. And yeah, he's got it. He's an amazing horse and he's a kind of our ambassador for vitamin E here. So um, many people have learned about that through him. Well, it was a neat story. And I remember seeing the before and after videos and he did, I mean, he was shaken like a Polaroid picture in the beginning. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and, and now then... he's a fat, shiny. Oh. oh yeah. He's huge now. He, he, he maxed out our scale. We can't weigh him. <laughs> He's a beefcake. Liberty's a beefcake. He's, he's a beefcake. Uh, no work. Just vitamin E. He's a beefcake. Yeah. Um, if only it was that easy. If only. I know, right? Get a shiny coat and, and a nice butt after just vitamin E. Yeah. yeah. We, we'd all should be rich. We all be, should we all, all be, be so lucky? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I love that story though, because I, I mean, it seems like something so simple that otherwise would have been missed, you know, and it's something that can really show you that normal isn't normal in every single patient, you know, whether it's human or horse. Um, and it goes back to that precision medicine approach. And so hopefully in the future, uh, you know, the, the sequencing of the genome gets to be a lot more widespread and a lot more people will have access to it and horses will have access to it. Cause I think the pioneer 100 study is so interesting what you all are doing, especially, um, you know, what that study was derived from with the group in Seattle. I mean, they're just brilliant. And um, it's, it's Dr. Nathan Price, right? And yeah. Dr. Lee Hood. So yeah. Dr. Lee Hood and Dr. Nathan Price are just, um, yeah, they are two of the more brilliant human beings you'll ever meet. And um, they're just doing fascinating work. So and they're excited about horses. I, when we went to I talk know. to them, I'm like, they're not going to want to hear this. And they thought it was the coolest project um, which was just, it was so much fun, right? You go in sometimes to folks doing research in human medicine and you think they're going to have no interest in what I'm doing. And, and they, they don't, they just thought it was phenomenal. And we've already, um, not to do too much of a spoiler alert, because Dr. Callum Donnelly is the graduate student who's done all of the work on the Pioneer Project. He's writing his thesis as we speak. Um, and he's actually has a faculty position at Cornell starting this fall. So I'm very excited what, for him. What a loser. How sad for him. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I just wish he wasn't leaving me, but it's okay. They have to, they have oh. to grow up and go do their faculty thing, but he's, uh, he's found some just within that herd over those two years, really interesting associations like between parasite load and metabolic syndrome and, you know, the overlap between Cushing's and metabolic syndrome and it's going to be, it's kind of turning a little bit what we thought upside down yeah. um, in some ways. And we've also found horses that actually transitioned during the period. So they actually were normal. They didn't have metabolic syndrome when we started the study. And then they actually developed it within those two years. And so we've watched them develop it and we have all of these markers and their metabolome to see what happened during that. So well, I'm sorry for those horses, but they sure gave you a great model to look at. Oh, and don't be sorry for those horses. They are body condition score of, you know, seven to eight out of nine out here. They are fat and happy and we've just gotten to monitor them. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just been such a cool way to you know, leverage having a research herd, right. That were donated for a variety of reasons. Um, and our they great the life, they, they do live, live the life. The life. Um, the life. I'm sorry. You're, you're losing your graduate student, but the, the <laughs> Cornell folks, they have such an amazing program back there and he's gonna, gonna join some great minds for oh, sure. They're so, so lucky to have them. Yes, for um, sure. 
Well, it's a, it's an incredible study and I really look forward to seeing how it evolves. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to, I want to go back to, you know, our discussion on genetics and some of these conditions in the horse that you suspect have a genetic or hereditary component to them, but we haven't really previously considered it. So what, what's out there in theory, you know, is it, like you said, metabolic disorders seems like it is absolutely going to be a major area of study with genetics and also how that's passed down from a hereditary perspective from, from parent to child, from mare to foal and so on through further generations. But what else is out there? Metabolic disorders. I mean, is it EIPH? Is it cancers? Is it, you know, what is it? What are, what's being discovered and what's being uh, theorized out there. So I'll tell you, all of my students always will roll their eyes because they, they always say, I think everything's genetic, or at least everything has some genetic component to it. Um, and I'm lucky enough to work with Dr. Seust over here at Davis, um, who's done so much work on racehorses and footing and, you know, breakdown and, and we're great partners because she thinks everything's environmental. Um, and so we have really good candid discussions about it. And we both kind of come to the middle ground where we think both of them play a role. Um, and so I think a lot of the diseases that we all as practitioners are aware have a genetic part at least, right? So metabolic syndrome, we touched upon um, OCD. Um, and that's, you know, one Dr. Annette McCoy has been working really hard on um, for many years. And that one's complicated. And then I like to call OCD's close sister um, wobbler's disease um, or cervical vertebral malformation because those horses, there's kind of that OCD component to some of that disease. So that's been worked on. Um, shivers is one in warm bloods and draft horses. Um, Dr. Valberg really started, you know, looking into and we've continued that. So I think there's, I mean, it's, I always have this slide that's like ongoing projects, right? And it's just a mile long. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much work to do but those aren't the easy ones, right? Those are going to be the more complex diseases that it's not just genetics. It's not, you know, it's not HYPP, right? It's not one mutation that you either have one copy or two copies and you're affected. It's going to be that here's some genetics that might influence it. And then when you add the environmental factor on top. Um, and so, I mean, the prime example that, you know, the disease I thought I'd figure out during my PhD and here I am a few years later, uh, not having figured it out is just a few, is uh, equine neuroaxonal dystrophy. And that is a, a vitamin deficiency. Um, and you have to have those two things to get the disease. So if you just have one, you know, if you have a horse with the genetics raised on irrigated pasture in California or natural pasture in Kentucky, they're not going to develop the disease, right? You take that same horse and you put it in a dry lot and they will. So I, I think we need to unravel that a bit more. And as veterinarians, when especially you're the ones going to the farm and you know the clients and you know what, how the horses are raised, you know, that's, that's such critical information. Um, when you bring a horse to a clinic, you miss the whole environment piece, right? Where are they? How are they raised? What's their nutrition? What does the hay look like? Um, I think we need to just really keep that in mind when we're looking at these types of diseases. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's great that the stubbornness of Dr. Sue Stover and Dr. Carrie Finno is going <laughs> to solve a lot of problems for the world. We get along really well, but yes, we are universally stubborn. So it's a lot of fun. She's always just like, oh, you and your genetics. It's like, oh, you oh and your God. footing. <laughs> so. And Dr. Stover is headed toward AEP this year, right? As the yes. Milne lecturer. So yes. that's going to be um, a, an incredible lecture to watch and really an, an amazing lady that's accomplished a lot oh, yes. in medicine. So I'm sure that'll be a popular, popular lecture and a big honor. Well-deserved. Well, and a great, great role model for a lot of us, you know, female veterinarians that went into research. She was, um, and is still way ahead of her time. Yeah, you bet. So where are we going? Where are we going in terms of genetics? Where do you want to see it go? And what do you hope comes out of the study of genetics in the near future? So. I'm going to give the the promise of what I'd like it to be and then the caution note, right? <laughs> so um, I, we keep talking about all of this stuff and how amazing this would be. We'd have these markers and we could do all this predictive medicine with it. But there's a note of caution in there um, because there it, it is, you are able to come up with possible associations pretty easily, right? So you've got a group of horses and you have a few genetic markers and they look like they're associated with that disease. And the there's incentive then to say okay well let's let's make a test let's make it so it's available right and um but i think without going in and actually validating it and knowing that that truly is linked especially to a disease right if we're not just talking about a fun phenotype right like hair in your ear which would not be a fun phenotype but for some people i guess but if we're not just talking about that right if we're talking about a disease it really needs to be solid Right? It really needs to be um, that we are as convinced as we can be as researchers before we start rolling it out. Because the problem is, right, is that if you put all that stuff out there and it's actually not substantiated, it reflects badly right on the entire research field. Um, and people start doubting tests that are actually real. So I think we just, we can be excited, but we need to be still really good scientists and we need to do our due diligence and it may take longer than people want. Um, I'm always the one that's saying, okay, if you want to investigate a disease, you know, it's going to be at least a year, if not more like, you know, two to five. So I think we need to have some patience. We need to know it's coming, but that it's going to be worth the wait, that doing it right is going to be worth the wait. And um, I think that's, you know, that's where the sky's the limit. So we just all need to, including me, temper my enthusiasm. Practice and patience. It's always the hardest thing. Goes, it goes against all of every, every piece of our being. Um, <laughs> no, but I love that. I think that there, this is going to be an area of veterinary medicine, of human medicine, and, and of the intersection between the two. Um, that really can change the shape of how we, how we view disease and early detection and precision medicine. And, you know, there's so many pieces of it that can really change a lot of lives. So I think that your work is endlessly fascinating. And I'm so happy that there's people like you at the helm, um, you know, looking into these things and making them a reality, you know, more than, more than a concept, more than an idea, but kind of bringing them to fruition um, and polishing them. So they are the real deal. Like you said, so, well, I, I want to thank Dr. Carrie Finno as, as a as really a longtime and dear friend of ours at Platinum. It's really good to see you and talk to you, you about something that you're so passionate about and that you so easily get the rest of us so passionate <laughs> about. 
I love that. About- it's good. I never thought I'd get anyone whipped up about genetics. So if I can oh. get if I can get people excited about equine genetics, that's I have achieved my mission. Well, I mean, hundred percent geeking out over here, and I'm sure everybody everybody listening <laughs> will do the same thing. Um, but thank you for being here, really, and um, it's it's completely my pleasure to get to ask you these questions and listen to um, listen to all these fascinating answers. And for all of those joining us, I want to thank you too, and I hope you're back. Uh, for our next discussion. And until then, take care, everyone. I'm Jesse Bangoa, and thanks for joining us with Platinum Performance. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Dr. Fenno. Bye.